Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hi, everyone. My name is Mike DeBliss. I'm presenting on the topic of how the IRS reconstructs income in tax fraud cases. It's my pleasure to uh, do this presentation with you today. It's um, actually a two-part presentation because it's kind of lengthy. So I'm going to try to cover as much material as I can in the first part. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am a tax attorney. Um, I have a bit of a unique background um, as I started out doing criminal defense. Um, and uh, I became very interested in white collar work along the way. And I quickly realized that uh, when handling white collar cases, uh, tax, tax issues oftentimes um, came up. And that led me to go back to school and earn my master's in tax law. And uh, these days I'm doing a lot of tax dispute resolution work um, in tax court and, um, you know, for, and, you know, in normal everyday uh, negotiations with the IRS. Uh, so again, this topic is on how the IRS reconstructs income in tax fraud cases. Um, so I think a good place to start here is by discussing the elements of tax evasion. In all criminal cases, the government has the burden of proving each and every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, no different than any other um, criminal offense. There are three elements in a standard tax evasion case. Uh, the first is what's called a substantial tax deficiency. The second is an affirmative attempt to evade tax. And the third is the um, knowledge or uh, mens rea requirement, which in this case is willfulness. We're going to go into detail on each one. So let's first begin with substantial tax deficiency. Substantial is a fact-specific inquiry that is up to the jury to decide, and they have to employ um, the everyday meaning of this word. The Third Circuit has also approved a definition of the term, um, and, and that really isn't very useful, however. Um, they basically use the uh, definition of whether the amount is substantial turns on whether under the surrounding circumstances the amount of the deficiency would be significant to an ordinary person. Uh, as you can tell, that is a very um, vague uh, definition uh, because what is significant to an ordinary person? Uh, it's almost like going back to law school with a reasonable, prudent person in torts class. If substantial means more than noticeable, we're probably talking somewhere around 15 or 20 percent in additional taxes. Now, I want to segue uh, to the affirmative attempt to evade tax. In an analysis borrowed from criminal conspiracy laws, the government must first prove that the taxpayer formed an intent or scheme to evade the tax, and second, that the taxpayer committed at least one overt act in furtherance of that scheme. The statute uses the term attempts. Now, courts have added affirmative to the statute in order to emphasize the uh, gravity or the seriousness of the crime and to distinguish tax evasion from other less serious tax crimes. 
For example, a taxpayer may intend to evade tax by failing to file his tax return. However, as we all know, a failure to do something alone is not an affirmative attempt to evade tax. There has to be some other affirmative conduct to defeat the tax due and owing to support a tax evasion charge. This does not mean that the taxpayer gets off scot-free. He or she certainly can be charged with the lesser included offense of failure to file under Section 7203. But the difference between failure to file and tax evasion is a difference between a felony and a misdemeanor. Willfulness. Oh boy, this is a loaded, loaded term. It's um, very elusive. While it may be easy to define, and um, it is, it's defined as an intentional violation of a known legal duty. It is not easy to apply. Uh, so I'm going to say that once again. While the definition might appear to be straightforward and black and white, it's not easy to apply. And this is because every word that is uttered in the phrase, an intentional violation of a, of a known legal duty, has a very specific definition. I think a good way to back our way into this is to acknowledge that the taxpayer doesn't have to be an evil, insidious person, uh, nor must the taxpayer have acted with an evil motive or in bad faith. Um, you know, I'm almost thinking of these characters from some of the cartoons that um, I watched growing up, you know, with the um, handle mustache and um, the eerie, um, eerie deep voice uh, which connotes some type of um, evil and sinister motive and they're plotting and scheming. No, <laughs> the taxpayer doesn't have to be evil. Um, the willfulness element, um, you know, basically means that we're, that the government is looking for an intentional viola violation of a known legal duty. All that is required is that the taxpayer knew that he had a duty to pay the tax and yet knowingly intended to violate that duty. All right, so I'm going to back up once again. All that's required here is that the taxpayer knew that he had a duty to pay the tax and yet knowingly intended to violate that duty. As courts have noted, willful is a bit of a chameleon. Um, and by chameleon, what I'm referencing here, referring to, is um, the animal that changes its color um, based on different weather conditions and um, whether it's in danger. Um, in the same way, willful is a chameleon that changes in tone and color according to the Internal Revenue Code section involved and the circumstances. I like to draw upon an example from the world of the F-bar when it comes to highlighting the willfulness element. Um, I do a lot of work in the international tax compliance arena and the F-bar is a law enforcement tool um, that was created by FinCEN in order to keep track of individuals who were depositing um, certain over a certain threshold of money into accounts. The theory is that um, there 
was a strong possibility that individuals who uh, deposit um, certain amounts over certain thresholds could be um, aiding and abetting terrorists and terrorist organizations. Um, the FBAR is a tool of FinCEN and not the IRS. However, um, most of the enforcement is done by the IRS. And it's been in the books for a very, very long time, even before 2001. However, enforcement efforts were ratcheted up on the FBAR front um, in the wake of the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks. The FBAR rule states that a U.S. person must file an FBAR. Uh, and by the way, FBAR stands for Foreign Bank Account Report. Um, so there's all these mnemonics, um, you know, that people throw around in the tax arena. And a lot of times if you Google them, they come right up and you can, you can get the English um, you know, human version of what the heck the form is um, by merely entering it into uh, Google search. Uh, but a U.S. person must file an FBAR if that person has a financial interest in or signature authority over any financial account outside of the United States and the aggregate maximum value of the account exceeds $10,000 in U.S. currency at any time during the calendar year. Uh, there are a series of uh, commonly asked questions about the FBAR, um, and I'll discuss them briefly because they are going to dovetail into the willfulness requirement. Um, how does an FBAR violation occur? Well, it can occur in one of two ways. First, by failing to disclose a foreign account on an FBAR altogether, or secondly, by disclosing a foreign account on an FBAR, but underreporting the correct amount, which is the maximum value of that account during the calendar year. So that sometimes uh, befuddles taxpayers. They don't realize that uh, there could be an FBAR violation despite having disclosed the foreign account if the maximum amount of the account is not correctly and accurately listed on the FBAR. Now we're going to um, segue back into willfulness. How do courts interpret willfulness for FBAR violations? They do so as follows. The only thing that a person need know is that he had a reporting requirement. And if a person has that requisite knowledge, the only intent needed to constitute a willful violation of the requirement is a conscious choice not to file the FBAR. So I think you're beginning to get a picture of how despite this being a mens rea element and despite the mens rea elements of any criminal offense being the highest um, threshold for the government to cross in order to prove beyond a reasonable doubt its existence, you're beginning to see almost like a watered-down version of willfulness in respect to FBAR violations. Once again, all that a person need know when it comes to willfulness for an FBAR violation is that he had a reporting requirement. And secondly, if that person had knowledge of the reporting requirement, all that's left for the government to prove is that there was an intent to constitute a willful violation of that requirement. And that's a conscious choice not to file the FBAR. A conscious choice not to file the FBAR. The latter 
meaning this colloquial phrase, conscious choice not to file the F-bar, is referred to in legal circles as the theory of willful blindness. Um, you might remember studying that in your Crim Pro class in law school. Uh, willful blindness is um, definitely, in my opinion, a watered-down version um, or a backdoor way or a way for the government to bootstrap um, you know, their, their um, evidence um, in order to prove willfulness uh, without the same heightened threshold that they otherwise would have if willful blindness wasn't available. What does it mean for a defendant to be willfully blind? Well, under the theory of willful blindness, a jury may infer willfulness whenever a taxpayer intentionally fails to inquire and learn about his or her filing obligations. In other words, instead of proving that the defendant intentionally violated a known legal duty, which is the heightened definition and the requirement, the government need only show that the defendant consciously avoided any opportunity to learn what the tax consequences were. So this is all fine and dandy in the um, sterile laboratory of the classroom. But how does this play out in practical terms? Well, here's what I have seen, and these are based on my firsthand knowledge of uh, representing clients um, and shepherding clients through voluntary disclosure programs who have um, FBAR noncompliance. Um, typically, the risk that taxpayers run in those situations is that in the last in the last decade in the last decade there have been an enormous amount of media attention on FBAR violations and uh, failures on that front. If you do a Google search in Forbes for Forbes. There is an article published virtually every week online and in print about FBARs. And so it's very difficult for a client um, that is somehow uh, crawling out from under a rock now in 2022 to assert that they had no um, independent knowledge of any duty to file an FBAR. Um, it just doesn't add up in the wake of all of the media attention and scrutiny surrounding FBARs over the last decade and decade plus. Um, so it's it's problematic in the sense that, you know, it doesn't pass the uh, smell test. And um, the government's burden of showing that the taxpayer um, consciously avoided any opportunity to learn about the tax consequences of FBARs is uh, very strong in today's age. It was strong seven or eight years ago, and it's been just a snowball that continues to um, get bigger and bigger as it uh, rolls down the mountain. Um, so as you, can, as you can see here, um, it, it, it's, it's, very, it's, it, it's, it's very easy for the government under willful blindness to prove that the taxpayer basically um, dug his heels or the taxpayer um, dug his head into the sand um, like an ostrich 
and decided not to um, learn what the tax consequences were because of all of this media and attention and hoopla surrounding the FBAR. So how does the government prove willfulness in the prosecution of a taxpayer for failing to file an FBAR? As we all know, and this is the um, this is the issue all the time when it comes to proving a mental state in criminal in the criminal context, it's impossible for the government to open up a person's head and to see what they were thinking at any given point in time. That's ridiculous. Um, that you know you can't do that. So. What the government looks at are actions and conduct on the part of the defendant that would tend to show what their mental state was at the time period in question. So, you know, seldomly are there any witnesses, and only in a rare case would a defendant admit the required state of mind. So what does the government rely on? Indirect evidence. Um, as I just mentioned before, this independent evidence comes out in the form of conduct or acts from which a person's state of mind can be inferred. And in the tax um, arena, we refer to these acts as badges of fraud. All right. So once again, the conduct or acts of the taxpayer, which can be used to infer their state of mind, is commonly referred to as badges of fraud. Examples of some common badges of fraud that are sure to attract the IRS's attention in the context of FBAR violations are the following. First, a taxpayer who checks the box off no on Schedule B of their return in response to the question, do you have an interest in or signature authority over a financial account in a foreign country, when in fact they have just such an account. Um, so I, I'm going to back up for a second. On the tax return in Schedule B, Part 3, there is that very question. And it asks the taxpayer if they have an interest in or signature authority over a financial account in a foreign country. I can't tell you how many times I've come across uh, cases where the client has checked the box off no when in fact they've had a multitude of foreign accounts. Now, does checking the box off no when the taxpayer has a multitude of foreign uh, bank accounts automatically mean that they were willful? No, but it's one badge of fraud that combined with others can make the government's case airtight for willfulness. Secondly, whether the failure to report the account occurred continuously over a period of years or whether it was merely an isolated incident. In other words, did the taxpayer's failure to file an FBAR occur over the course of time or was it just one year? Obviously, if it's, being, if it's happened continuously over a lengthy period of time, that is more demonstrative or illustrative of a person who was willful. Whether the taxpayer failed to report a foreign account in a later year despite having checked the box off yes on Schedule B of his return in an earlier year. You have no idea. I mean, what the, some of the things that we as tax attorneys see in this area, um, you know, make you want to scratch your head. Uh, but yes, there's been situations that I've uh, witnessed firsthand where a taxpayer 
has um, checked the box off yes on Schedule B in an earlier year only to not file a foreign bank account report in subsequent years. Uh, this reveals that the taxpayer knew that he had an FBAR reporting obligation in the later year. Uh, so, you know, it makes no sense that they didn't file in a later year if in an earlier return from a prior year they indicated that they had a foreign bank account. Unless, of course, the bank account was closed. The high watermark balance of the account. The amount of money at stake is crucial when it comes to FBAR reporting. Unreported accounts with a maximum aggregate balance that are half a million or, gr or greater are heavily scrutinized. As one prominent tax attorney uh, was quoted as saying, if a person has a $10 million account, I don't want to hear he was non-willful and neither does the government. Some of the other badges of fraud are whether the taxpayer told his tax preparer about the account whether the account was held in such a way as to conceal ownership. By that I mean, was it in the name of a foreign shell corporation or a foreign trust or some other entity that would make it difficult for the IRS to learn the true identity of the owner? Was the account a numbered account, as was typical, uh, the typical of the case in Switzerland uh, for many decades? Uh, that has since changed. Was a taxpayer issued a credit or debit card without his or her name visible on the card itself? Did the bank help the taxpayer repatriate cash to the U.S. using um, hidden or covert means? Uh, for example, did bank managers and their U.S. clients use code words and emails to gain access to funds? I realize that you know some of this might sound a little outlandish and we might be teetering into the world of James Bond, but you know, nonetheless, these are badges of fraud. Did U.S. clients ever use coded language, such as asking their private bankers, can you download some tunes for us? That came out of a case, believe it or not. Or note that their, quote, gas tank was running empty, end quote, when they required additional cash to be loaded to their cards. Whether the taxpayer closed the foreign account and transferred the assets to another bank in the wake of a DOJ press release or media coverage reporting that the taxpayer's bank had become the target of an IRS summons. Wow, that could be a smoking gun. I've had that happen before. And again, this is not definitive. These are not definitive in and of themselves. But once you have, once you start beginning to check off yes to a bunch of these badges of fraud, the needle begins to teeter um, very quickly towards the end of the spectrum for willfulness. Um, so, for example, um, headlines splashed across the front page of major newspapers about a bank that had an IRS summons um, issued for the U.S. account holder information of the, um, of the accounts, and in the wake of that, a taxpayer closing a foreign account at that institution. Uh, another badge of fraud, whether a taxpayer who has a duty to file an FBAR checks the box off, yes, to the question uh, on Schedule B Part 3 um, and then doesn't file an FBAR. Um, or if they check off the box yes to the question, do you have an interest in or signature authority over a financial account in a foreign country, and then no to the follow-up question. If yes, are you required to file FBAR to report that financial in to report that financial interest or signature authority? 
So they've got to be consistent. They can't, you know, they can't be slippery. If they, if they uh, say yes to the first question, then the logical answer to the second question is going to be yes if, of course, they meet the remaining requirements. And as I mentioned, there is a threshold requirement in which um, at any given point during the tax year, if the aggregate balance of the accounts exceeded $10,000, that triggers the FBAR filing. If the aggregate balances of the accounts was under $10,000, then that's a different story, and that would warrant appropriately a no answer to the follow-up question. But most of the time, the account balances are well over the $10,000 U.S. threshold. And by the way, they have to convert um, the amounts from the native currency into the U.S. currency using the exchange rate that's in effect as of the last day of the tax year. The other badges of fraud here are the amount of interest generated by the foreign account. Usually it's negligible, um, and whether that interest was reported on the taxpayer's tax return, keep in mind that interest must be reported no matter how negligible on the returns. Um, to the extent that the interest was left off, I mean, that would, of course, mean that an amendment of that year's returns would be necessary. Um, if the interest was reported on a U.S. tax return, the IRS generally views the filing of an FBAR as a mere formality. In that case, a taxpayer can usually come into compliance with his U.S. tax obligations by filing a delinquent FBAR. Another badge of fraud is whether the taxpayer instructed bank personnel to hold back his bank statements and not mail them to him in the U.S., Another badge, whether the taxpayer had been subject to a previous audit involving unreported offshore assets or bank accounts. The number of foreign bank accounts held, is it one or is it 16 or six? Once again, no single factor is dispositive. It is a totality of the circumstances test. Ultimately, the jury looks into the mind of the defendant to determine whether he intentionally violated the statute. To the extent that the government can show the jury enough badges of fraud to prove willfulness beyond a reasonable doubt, the government will have satisfied its burden of proving criminal intent through circumstantial evidence. Um, one thing I want to do here is just distinguish um, briefly the standard of proof in a civil tax case versus a criminal one. In civil cases, the burden of proof is on the taxpayer. But in the criminal realm, as we've already discussed, the government bears the burden of proof. The standard of proof in a criminal case um, in tax, as in any other criminal um, case, is beyond a reasonable doubt. And so what does a reasonable doubt mean? Well, it's a doubt based upon reason and common sense after careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence. Um, and this is language that has been lifted from case law. It's also defined as proof of such a convincing character that jurors would be willing to rely upon it without hesitation in the most important of their own affairs. You know, all of this legal jumbo mumbo is good, and I think as lawyers we, we place value in it, but when you've got a jury consisting of lay people who hear a case and then begin deliberating, you know, they are, they are the boots on the ground and 
they're going to use a lot of practical common sense um, when it comes to you know evaluating the case and um, distinguishing between what's fact as as opposed to what's not fact. Um, so you know this is this is all very intellectually uh, stimulating to us, I think, as lawyers and as people who have you know invested ourselves in the study of the law. Um, but my experience as a trial lawyer, having tried dozens um, of cases, is that you know jurors don't necessarily aren't necessarily moved by all of this language. And yet, um, I want to be very clear that they must follow the instructions. You know, they have an oath to follow the judge's instructions. But practically speaking, um, uh, most most of the time they do rely upon their experiences. And you know, when they hear a set of facts um, that is advanced by one side, they begin to de- they begin to compare it to their sense of how you know things work. And if it passes you know, their litmus test, you know, then they accept those facts as true. Um, but a lot of times they're holding these various, these competing versions up against what they, uh, uh, against, against their backgrounds and experiences and determining whether it passes the taste test, the litmus test. As for reasonable doubt, the Third Circuit has approved the following instruction. A reasonable doubt is not a whim. It is not a speculation or suspicion. It is not an excuse to avoid the performance of an unpleasant duty, and it is not sympathy. There are two aspects of the burden of proof. Uh, The first is the risk of non-persuasion, which is colloquially referred to as a burden of persuasion. Um, The second is the burden of production. It's important to distinguish between the two as the distinction does impact the outcome of cases. The risk of non-persuasion never shifts. It starts out on the government and it remains on the government. The burden of production, on the other hand, can shift with respect to particular issues in the case. The overall burden of persuasion never moves away from the government, but the burden of production sometimes shifts. Initially, the government has the burden of production as well because there has to be sufficient evidence to convince a reasonable juror that the defendant is guilty. This shifts occur, this shift rather occurs in income reconstruction cases. So here's a quick and dirty example. It's a 7201 evasion of assessment case. The government shows that Adam omitted $100,000 of taxable receipts from his return. The issue that comes up is whether this proves beyond a reasonable doubt that Adam owed tax on an additional $100,000 of income and thus committed tax evasion. What do you think? Well, by itself, this is insufficient to prove that there was additional tax due and owing. Why, then you might ask? Well, it's theoretically possible that Adam had reported, had rather unreported deductible expenses that either completely offset the omitted income or offset it enough that the resulting tax was no longer material and therefore was insufficient to to sustain a tax evasion charge. So let's just go back and let's recap here. We have 
a criminal tax case. Adam is a defendant in a federal courtroom, and the government is alleging that he omitted $100,000 of taxable receipts from his return. And the issue that the jury is left to decide is whether this omission of $100,000 in and of itself proves beyond a reasonable doubt that he owed tax on an additional $100,000 of income and that by failing to pay tax on that income, he committed tax evasion. Because we are dealing with a very unique type of case, a tax case, this proof of omission of $100,000 of tax, taxable receipts does not by itself prove that Adam committed tax evasion. And the reason why I say that is because it is theoretically possible that Adam had unreported deductible expenses that either completely offset the $100,000 of omitted income or, or offset it enough that the resulting tax liability was no longer material. And that is significant because it doesn't have to, the deductions do not have to completely offset the omitted income. It just has to be enough to offset it to the extent that the resulting tax liability is no longer material. And therefore, the government would be unable to sustain a tax evasion charge. So rule, the mere proof of unreported income is insufficient in and of itself to establish additional tax liability. What if Adam remains silent and doesn't suggest additional deductions or credits? Must the government go out and investigate every possible deduction? My God, I mean, it, theoretically, there could be hundreds of deductions. We know from just reading the Internal Revenue Manual. The Internal Revenue Manual contains, like I said, hundreds of deductions and credits. Does the government have to say, well, we investigated whether there's a child credit and there is no child credit available. We investigated whether Adam had more medical and dental deductions than were claimed on the return, but there are no Section 213 deductions. And, so we don't forget, we looked at Adam's business and we didn't find any accelerated appreciation deductions under 168. No. Um, it, as you can see, it just gets into... Um, it gets into a ludicrous um, territory if the government has to go through every uh, deduction and negate them. So the government has to, doesn't have to negate every possible deduction. It's not part of their burden of production to negate every deduction. Instead, once the government shows that there's unreported income, which in this case is $100,000 of unreported receipts, the burden of production would then shift to Adam as a defendant to identify additional offsetting deductions. That's why the first rule of thumb is in a tax, in a criminal tax case, is that you have a forensic accountant to go through this and determine what, if any, deductions were potentially available to Adam um, to take and that were not taken. And if he did take them, were they enough to offset this um, this tax liability to the extent that it would no longer be material. The taxpayer defendant must indicate at least some basis for believing that these deductions exist. He can't just 
you know, say, oh, well, this one looks like it would apply. I mean, there has to be well-grounded basis. Assuming Adam can produce evidence that he had expenses and deductions which reduced the tax to the point that it was no longer substantial, the government's case fails unless they can come back and refute Adam's version of events. So now you're beginning to see how these burdens shift. Let's assume for a second that Adam has some basis for believing that additional offsetting deductions exist. In that case, the burden shifts back to the government to negate the asserted additional deductions. Ultimately, it's up to the jury to decide who made the more convincing case. So let's summarize. The risk of non-persuasion starts out in the government and ends on the government. The burden of going forward starts on the government, may shift to the defendant, and then may shift back to the prosecution. And there could be more shifts, but I mean, our heads are already spinning around with the number of shifts we've just talked about in this typo. How about direct, indirect, and hybrid methods of proof? This section addresses the means or theories by which the government attempts to prove the tax due and owing element of Section 7201, which is tax evasion. These methods may be used either during the government's case in chief or at sentencing. Now, under the sentencing guidelines, the most important consideration is the amount of tax loss. The larger the tax loss, the greater the period of incarceration for the convicted defendant. So you can see why there is a dogfight when it comes to the amount of tax loss. It could mean the difference between whether your client spends the next four years in a federal detention facility or perhaps less than half that amount. So that's where the fight is. As unsettling as it might be, the government can attempt to prove for sentencing purposes a larger amount of tax liability than it attempted to prove at the guilt or innocent stage at trial. Um, this doesn't sit well with me. I'll be brutally honest with you. The fact that the government can get a conviction using a smaller amount of tax liability uh, than it uses, than it relies upon at the time of sentencing, it is, it, it seems pig-headed in many ways, and it seems as if the prosecutor is really looking to pile on, and um, I, it, it just doesn't pass the smell test for me, uh, but it's, it's um, the law, and uh, as I said, the government can actually prove tax uh, can prove tax evasion using a lesser amount of tax liability and then turn around at the sentencing stage and rely on a larger amount of tax liability in order to get a greater sentence. Prosecutors can use the direct method to either establish unreported income or, in a few other cases, to refute the taxpayer's claims regarding expenses and deductions. Here are a few scenarios. In scenario number one, the government asserts, quote, it's right here. We can point to exactly what the problem is on this return. This deduction was claimed at $40,000, but it is legitimately only a $5,000 item. We can prove a $35,000 overstatement of deductions. Wouldn't that be beautiful? The government loves a clean case like that. The government abhors 
a case where there are there, where there's gray because as you can imagine gray gives the defense the opportunity to argue the seed of doubt in scenario number two the taxpayer gets $75,000 worth of receipts from person A. These receipts were taxable, but the taxpayer never reported them on his return. The IRS's argument would be, we can identify precisely where it is on the false return and how it gave rise to the additional tax liability due and owing. Because the taxpayer has tangible, I'm sorry, the IRS has tangible proof. They have $75,000 worth of receipts, and then they have the return, which, um, which uh, mysteriously does not report those receipts. So you can see that with that tangible evidence, the IRS has two smoking guns, and the the uh, attorney, um, the uh, the prosecuting attorney, is then able to put those on, blow them up, and um, put them right in front of the jury to see. And when the jury sees the $75,000 worth of receipts and compares it to the tax return that mysteriously doesn't report those receipts, um, they can then, you know, they, they then see the roadway or the pathway to the fraud. Typically, the government compares the claimed or reported amount on the tax form to the actual receipt and abracadabra, it effectively meets both the burden of production and the burden of persuasion because it is almost impossible for the defendant to explain away direct reproof, direct proof of this type. Two smoking guns, and it's all in black and white. You know, so this is the type of case that the government salivates over bringing to a jury. In other cases, these receipts can fill in the blanks in an allegedly fraudulent return. So as you can imagine, the government greatly prefers direct methods to indirect methods. Direct methods always start with the taxpayer's return. When the taxpayer has filed a return for the year in question, the government will introduce it. In doing so, the IRS will use the taxpayer's admitted income as their baseline. For hearsay purposes, the return is deemed to be an admission by the taxpayer as to the items included on the return. Therefore, it's admissible. Um, this actually brings up a good issue because when the taxpayer signs the return, they are charged with having read the return and um, attesting to the truth of everything that's on that return. So the argument that is often made by the taxpayer that they had their preparer prepare their return, and they just uh, arbitrarily signed it without looking over it. Doesn't fly because, as I just said, uh, by signing the return, they are charged with attesting to the truth of everything that was in that return, and they can't later on deny that they read it and that they didn't understand or that they didn't know that their preparer did A, B, or C and that it was a preparer's fault. By the way, the argument or the defense that it was a tax preparer's fault is a very weak argument, unless, of course, the tax preparer has a history of having been blamed by a multitude of other taxpayers. Then it, there could be an issue there.
Example number one, direct method. If the return reflects $40,000 of, of gross income, the government can treat that amount as a given. Defendant may later state, oops, I was wrong. I didn't have $40,000, only $30,000. But that is a tough road to hoe because the taxpayers, the taxpayers don't typically overstate their income on returns. It's usually the opposite. They understate it. Example number two, if a taxpayer wants to dispute additional unreported income by asserting additional deductions, the fact that these additional deductions weren't on the return constitutes an admission. Yes, it does. It constitutes an admission that there weren't any additional deductions. So that is that kind of blows um, you know, the defense out of the water, the lack of um, additional deductions not being on the return is an admission that there weren't any additional deductions. Criminal numbers, sentencing numbers, and civil numbers. This gets complicated, so please stay with me here. I'm going to try and go through it slowly. Um, typically, these three numbers diverge. Uh, the government will be the most conservative where it has the highest burden of proof. And where does it have the highest burden of proof? It has the highest burden of proof when it's in trial because it has to prove each and every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, if you're following this, um, if you're following this thread of thought, it's not unusual for the government to use different amounts during the guilt and innocent stages versus the sentencing phase. Because again, the theory here is that the government is going to be the most conservative where it has the highest burden of proof. Because the highest burden of proof is at trial, that's where the government is going to be the most conservative for its numbers. It wants to have a clean case that it can put through. It doesn't want to have a criminal number um, meaning like a tax deficiency um, or an unreported amount of gross income that is speculative and that could be um, disputed by um, the, uh, the defendant's attorney asserting deductions that offset it. It wants to have as black and white and as clear and um, easy a slam dunk of a criminal number as possible at the guilt or innocent phase so that they can get the conviction. Then when they get the conviction, they can begin to, let's say, inflate, but that is, you know, that insinuates a sinister motive um, because, you know, criminal numbers, there has to be a justification for it even at the sentencing phase. Um, but at the sentencing phase, we're dealing with a lesser burden. Um, it's no longer beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's why the criminal numbers tend to rise at the sentencing phase. Um, but again, the prosecution has to have a basis for alleging those, um, those numbers. So I don't want you to think that it just gets a buy and they can um, increase the numbers triple, you know, quadruple, or five times what it was at the trial uh, without a basis for doing so. They still must have a basis, but the strategy is get the conviction with as clean and, um, and as well-supported 
evidence-wise number as we can, and then we can deal with a higher number, a higher criminal number at sentencing, which would result in more time, the defendant doing more time. So trial, there might be more unreported income than what the government asserts in the guilt or innocence phase of the trial. I'm going to say that again. There might and oftentimes is more unreported income than what the government asserts in the guilt or innocence phase of the trial. For example, the government might believe that there's 110,000 of unreported income, but 30,000 of that could go either way. Why? Well, very simply, there might not be enough evidence to prove evasion of 30,000. In that case, what does the government do? The government asserts only $80,000. Let me make sure my math is right for a second here. Oh, I'm sorry. I think my math, no, my math is right. Okay. So we're dealing with $110,000 of unreported income, but the government believes that $30,000 could go either way. Um, and the reason why is because they might not, there might not be enough evidence to prove evasion of 30000 So what does the government do? In that case, it would assert only 80000 during the guilt or innocence phase, which is um, shorthand for the trial or longhand for the trial. The government typically introduces rock-solid, hard, unshakable evidence in the guilt or innocence stage. And the reason why is because if there is a rumbling or a shaking or even the slightest bit of quivering, this tends to introduce reasonable doubt. For this reason, the government usually selects a smaller number at the guilt or innocence stage. At the sentencing stage, the government runs wild and goes for more. And in this case, they go for the additional $30,000. On the civil side, the government will always seek the maximum. Let's return to our friend Adam. Let's say, okay, let's say the service only establishes, the service might only establish 75,000 in unreported income during the guilt or innocence phase because the evidence regarding the other $25,000 is a little shaky. Later, at the penalty or sentencing phase, the prosecutors can use the $100,000 amount, total amount, to maximize the criminal penalties against Adam. In all criminal cases, um, if there's no smoking gun, the prosecutor must rely on circumstantial evidence. In tax cases, this is um, secret uh, talk or um, this means indirect methods. Uh, so circumstantial evidence is usually what gives rise to indirect methods of proof in tax cases. The government can argue that there is a circ that there is circumstantial evidence which logically leads to the inescapable conclusion that the taxpayer's return is wrong, even though the government can't point to exactly what it is. They can't say, oh, it's here, oh, it's there on line 13 or line 15. They don't have the luxury of that because they have no smoking gun. Instead, they have to rely upon circumstantial evidence. Uh, indirect methods are subject to heightened scrutiny. Uh, they are complicated and difficult to explain to juries. Because of their potential for mischief, appellate courts clo closely scrutinize indirect methods. Therefore, the chance of reversal on appeal is great. There is a multi-step process for indirect methods. The government must establish the following. First, 
a direct method that a, a direct method is not available or is unreliable. Second, that there is a likely taxable source for the unreported income. Let me back up and I will get into a little more detail. The first um, element that the government has to establish uh, before it can rely on an indirect method is that a direct method is not available or is unreliable. So by not available, what the court is saying here is that the taxpayer's books and records are unavailable, meaning that the taxpayer never kept them or they were lost or destroyed or lost or destroyed them. What is meant by unreliable? Well, the taxpayer's books and records are available, but they are not reliable, meaning that they contain errors galore. This barrier prevents prosecutors from ignoring hard evidence that may not be as damning in favor of circumstantial evidence that artful lawyers can doctor up. So the government cannot just arbitrarily rely on these indirect methods. You see here that the courts are putting up some safeguards and saying, first, you've got to show us that a direct method is not available or is unreliable. Um, and under those definitions, not available is that the taxpayer's books and records are not available uh, for purposes of unreliable. We're talking about uh, the taxpayer's books and records are available, but for whatever reason, they are not reliable, perhaps because they contain all sorts of errors. Uh, once again, the prosecutor, as a tactic, may want to go directly to these indirect methods because they find that they are more compelling than the weak evidence that they might have for a direct method. And yes, there, couldn't, there can be some direct methods um, of proof that just are not as strong as indirect methods. And like I said, you know, the court is saying, whoa, 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 almost like a, a rider on a horse, you know, trying to get the horse to a halt. You can't go there yet unless you make out, unless you satisfy these elements, um, because we are worried that, you know, um, you might be ignoring hard evidence because it's simply not as damning as what, as this other, um, you know, circumstantial evidence that we fear can be doctored up. And then secondly, uh, there has to be a likely taxable source for the unreported income. So uh, by likely taxable source for the unreported income, the government must show some source from which a taxpayer was likely to have gotten the unreported income. For example, Adam may have reported $100,000 of income from a consulting company in 2015, but Zippo in 2016. If the judge determines that the prosecutors have met both elements of the preliminary test, they can then use indirect evidence. Now, if that is the case, there are five approved models. Here are the types of indirect methods. The first is a net worth method. The second is expenditures method. The third is bank deposits and cash expenditures method. The fourth is percentage markup method. And the fifth is indirect methods to prove overstated deductions. Let's chat about the net worth method briefly. 
Uh, these are attempts to demonstrate that the taxpayer had more taxable income than what was reported. How so? By showing that the taxpayer had an increase in his net worth, an increase that could only have come from taxable income. The government establishes its case for net worth through the following steps. The government establishes the defendant's opening net worth using cost basis. So yeah, unfortunately, we have to go into some accounting uh, principles here, and I, I can't get into explicit detail because there's just not enough time in this presentation. But um, suffice to say, uh, the government establishes the opening net worth using cost basis. Typically, these are multiple tax years. The government shows at the beginning of the first prosecution year the defendant's net worth. Net worth must be calculated for non-cash assets at cost basis as opposed to fair market value. If the taxpayer's asset appreciates in value before a realizable event, such as the sale of the assets, the taxpayer does not have income. An unrealized appreciation is not taxable income. The government shows increases in net worth at the end of each of the years for the prosecution period. The government subtracts any known non-taxable receipts. Increase in net worth in any acquisition of new assets may have been financed by income that wasn't taxable. The government must prove willfulness directly or by inference. So what are some of the reasons why the government prefers to use the indirect or the direct method over the net worth method? Well, appellate courts, and I'm sure you probably got this impression as I was discussing um, the direct method earlier, appellate courts are suspicious of indirect methods and will allow their use only if the government has no other recourse and only if the method is applied strictly. There aren't as many IRS agents who are skillful in applying the indirect methods. What are some common defenses to net worth cases? Uh, there are a few. The first is that the net worth increase shown by the government is not an increase at all because of the existence of substantial cash on hand at the starting point. So, for example, I mean, the taxpayer may have had a lot of cash in the bank before the subsequent accounting period, um, and that might have been the reason that the taxpayer was able to indulge or, um, you know, uh, make purchases or live, um, you know, live according to a certain lifestyle, despite the fact that his or her income in that year in question was sufficiently less than the expenses that he incurred. Second, the net worth increase is attributable to some non-taxable source. Third, attacking the accuracy of the government's opening or closing net worth figure. Um, the net worth increase, okay, so we're, let me just see here. All right, just to circle back to number one, that the net worth increase shown by the government is not an increase at all because of the existence of substantial cash on hand at the starting point. In order to inject this issue, the defendant needs to testify, quote, I had a cash hoard which I had built up over pre-prosecution years and which I did not spend until the prosecution period. 
That's what supports the increase in my net worth. I use the money from this cash hoard to buy these additional assets, not from unreported taxable income. So you, you, you get what's going on here. The defendant is basically explaining why um, or how he was able to afford the assets um, and the items that were purchased in the prosecution period um, because otherwise, based on the income that was reported, there was no way that he could have otherwise afforded those um, items. You know, for example, a quick and dirty example might be, well, you reported income of $50,000 in this prosecution period, but your expenses were, you know, $100,000. How do you explain being able to afford all of these items during this period when you only reported $50,000 of gross income. And again, the taxpayer is falling back on the cash hoard defense that he had built up a nest egg over pre-prosecution years, and he held on to that nest egg and didn't spend it until the prosecution period. That's how he was able to buy these additional assets. It wasn't because he... Uh, it wasn't through unreported taxable income that these items or assets were purchased. Cash hoards are usually hidden, um, okay, inside underground PVC pipes in the backyard or inside mattresses. Uh, that's not entirely far from the truth. Uh, what are the potential sources of a cash hoard? Non-taxable sources or taxable sources in years as to which a statute of limitation had already expired. How does the government rebut the cash hoard defense? Well, the government is in a position where it must then prove a negative, um, that there was no cash hoard. Um, they can rely on admissions by the taxpayer. They can rely on financial statements given by the taxpayer to federal or state agencies or even to banks. Uh, they can reconstruct the taxpayer's income from pre-prosecution years using returns and other information to show low amounts of prior income. Yeah, this, this gets to be tit for tat. Um, and if you have a bulldog of an IRS agent, uh, they are going to really, um, you know, really dig their teeth into this. Uh, so if there isn't a lot of income listed on prior year returns, the government can legitimately ask, where did the money come from? And maybe the answer is non-taxable sources. But the taxpayer nonetheless is, um, you know, is, uh, is, you know, on the, um, you know, the taxpayer nonetheless is, you know, is, is, is under heat now and has to identify who died and left him the money, if that's the alleged non-taxable source. Establishing a history that casts doubt on the idea that the taxpayer had cash lying around, such as a bankruptcy petition filing or borrowing money. For example, the taxpayer files a loan application. So these are, these are some examples. Does a taxpayer have significant balances on his credit cards? If so, why? If he had money and he had amassed a cash hoard in prior years, why is he carrying over significant balances on his credit cards? Why isn't he paying them outright? If the taxpayer had cash lying around, of course, why didn't he use that cash to pay off the credit cards to avoid a ridiculous 18% interest rate? 
Or why did the taxpayer have to file bankruptcy if he had all of this cash lying around? You get the idea. Why did the taxpayer have to borrow money from his brother or from his friend if he had all of this cash lying around? Why was the taxpayer living below the poverty level? Or why did the taxpayer file a low-income housing application? You would be surprised to see what is uncovered. Um, another way that the IRS might rebut the net worth method defense. The net worth increase is attributable to some non-taxable source. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, this is actually uh, the defense itself. Gifts, inheritances, and loans might account for the newly acquired wealth. These items are non-taxable. So once again, gifts, inheritances, and loans. And the taxpayer can fall back on these and say, that was the source of the money that was used to buy, you know, these items during that, during this prosecution period. For example, my aunt died and left me $100,000. My brother gave me $10,000. I got a loan. Government has no burden to negate this defense until the taxpayer puts it into play. How much detail must the defense give the government and when? Well, the need to give the government this information, that there's a need to give, this, to give the government this information with sufficient specificity and particularity and with sufficient timeliness. If the defense fails to do either, then the government is relieved of its obligation to negate the item. So it's got to be put into play at the early stages of the case. Otherwise, it's almost like you forfeit. You do forfeit the right. Um, so even though when it comes to asserting a defense, the courts tend to be liberal in giving the defense additional time if it's not asserted within a certain time frame. Uh, even, even then, the courts will sometimes bar the defense if it's being asserted at a late stage of the case. Here's an example. An IRS investigation showed that the taxpayer had an opening year net worth of 50000 The taxpayer had a checking account with $50,000, which was the only asset the IRS could locate. The net worth method conclusively proved that the taxpayer had $57,000 of unreported income in the two-year period. The taxpayer's argument is that the method was flawed because he had an opening net worth in the form of an inheritance that the IRS did not identify or verify. So here we have the taxpayer injecting this non-taxable source of income. One month before the opening date of the two-year period, the taxpayer received a $50,000 inheritance that was non-taxable. He went to Las Vegas, cashed it there, and lost it all within days. Had the taxpayer retained the $50,000 past day one of the two-year period, it might have accounted for enough of the indicated income that the government that the government would not have pursued an, an evasion case on the $7,000 that remained. But because the cash had been spent prior to day one of the two-year period, the net worth method correctly indicated that the taxpayer had $57,000 of unreported income. Assume that the IRS could not exclude the possibility that the taxpayer held all of the cash on the critical opening date. Can the taxpayer's attorney affirmatively advise the IRS that the inheritance accounts for $50,000? Otherwise, 
unaccounted for cash on the opening day? Well, the relevance of this is that it would eliminate the net worth method as a means to obtain a conviction. The answer is that the defense can't say to the government, quote, your figures are wrong because you did not include this $50,000 of inheritance. Why? It's misrepresenting a known false fact, and it violates Section 1001. However, the attorney could ask the IRS special agent if he considered the inheritance just one month before. It's a suggestion, not a statement. I realize that we're getting into semantics here, but the statute is very finely written with very specific language, and a suggestion is not a statement. By asking this question, the attorney merely implies that the money might account for some significant part of the otherwise indicated unreported income. Is that implication sufficiently close to a statement that the defense counsel still has an ethical problem or a 1001 problem? Well, the defense has the right at trial to challenge the methodology used by the government to identify opening net worth. Therefore, defense counsel should be able to ask the agent whether a significant item that should have been considered but wasn't could impact the government's application of the net worth methodology. Attacking the accuracy of the government's opening or closing net worth figure is yet another defense. This argument is just straight up, quote, you crunched the numbers wrong, end quote. An example might be, the opening net worth that I had was greater than you thought it was. Therefore, the difference between opening and closing net worth was less. Or, the closing net worth was less than what the government thought it was. Now, here are some pitfalls inherent in the net worth method. While the government may be able to prove with reasonable accuracy an increase in net worth over a period of years, it often does have great difficulty in relating that income sufficiently to any specific prosecution year. That's why the government seldomly brings a single year indirect method case. In recognizing the potential inaccuracies of this approach, what do courts do? Well, they approach these cases with the realization that these imprecise methods might ensnare innocent taxpayers in the coils of prosecution. And therefore, the judges are try to be as crystal clear as they can in their jury charges, including summarizing the nature of the net worth method, the assumptions on which it rests, and inferences available both for and against the accused. Appellate courts should be particularly vigilant to make sure that the trial judge has done his job and that there wasn't any inappropriate conviction based on a faulty use of an indirect method. Now, there are other methods. And another one is what's called the expenditures method. I'm going to talk about it briefly. Um, it's also known as a source and application of funds method. If the taxpayer wasted his substance with riotous living, for example, to borrow a phrase from the story of the prodigal son, the service cannot use the net worth method and must convince the jury that the taxpayer spent so much money that there must have been an additional income somewhere. The difference here is that if the taxpayer uses additional 
unreported income to acquire assets, then the net worth method applies. But what if the taxpayer doesn't acquire assets, but instead spends it on high living, not involving any fixed or portable assets? In that case, the government employs the expenditures method. So you see the difference? We're in a situation right now where the taxpayer isn't acquiring assets, but instead spending it on a specific lifestyle of high living, um, not involving fixed or tangible assets. In that case, um, instead of relying upon the net worth method, the government would be relying upon the expenditures method. The government establishes opening and closing net worth. Uh, so they need to show that the expenditures did not come from drawing down previous assets, like we talked about in the net worth method. The government must show the amount of expenditures made by taxpayer during the year. The government must also deal with non-taxable sources. There's a case here that I would like to just bring up. It's a Taglianetti versus U.S. case. In that case, the defendant argued that the government failed to establish opening and closing net worth figures with accuracy. The First Circuit held that the IRS must only establish an opening and closing net worth with reasonable certainty. Um, so that turned into what the standard was, reasonable certainty for net worth at opening and closing. And here's the analysis. Although the amount may not have been established with precision, the court reasoned that what was established by the government was that the net worth at both the beginning and at the end of the prosecution was about the same. As long as there wasn't a decrease, then the expenditures could not have been funded by drawing down previous assets. Opening and closing net worth is significant in a comparative or a relative sense, but not in an absolute sense. The next method is the bank deposits and cash expenditures method. It's a hybrid method because it involves two different methods that have been rolled together into one. It basically combines the first two. It assumes that deposits into the defendant's bank account and expenditures made by the defendant are taxable income unless they came from a non-taxable source. There are two chief advantages to using this method. First, the government need not establish opening and closing net worth. Second, the government need only produce sufficient evidence for a reasonable juror to find fraud, as opposed to any of the classic fraud badges, uh, hidden accounts or duplicate books. You, you get the idea. We talked about them at the top. Here's an application of the hybrid approach. Um, this comes from the case of U.S. versus Esser. There were three tax years in question. The government charged defendant under Section 7201, tax evasion. In bank deposit cases, it's customary for the government to introduce deposit slips. However, in this case, it was virtually impossible to introduce deposit slips due to their poor quality, their unreliability, and their unavailability. Instead, the government introduced bank statements and passports books as the most reliable evidence available. 
What was the defendant's argument? Well, his first argument was that the bank deposits theory required an analysis of bank deposit items themselves. The government had a duty to specifically identify and analyze his deposit slips. By failing to do so, the government's case should fail. The court held wrong. This was a jury question. It's up to the jury to decide whether there was satisfactory proof of deposits. And there's no one legally required method. If the jury thought that it was sufficient, then that's good enough. The defendant also had a second argument. That argument was that the government failed to prove willfulness. What did the court hold? Wrong. Willfulness can be inferred by the jury as long as there is a satisfactory evidentiary basis for the inference. They reasoned that, admittedly, there was no evidence of the classic badges of fraud, such as duplicate books and hidden accounts. However, the government presented sufficient evidence to allow the jury to find that the defendant engaged in a pattern of understating income for three consecutive years. Consecutive um, is the operative word here. It wasn't just an isolated year, but it was consecutive years. That was sufficient for the court, or that was sufficient in the court's mind for the jury um, to infer willfulness. Percentage markup method. This is much more common in civil cases than in criminal cases. In criminal cases, it's not the principal method of proof. All right, once again, the percentage markup method is not the principal method of proof in criminal cases. Instead, it tends to corroborate understatements established by more reliable techniques. Once again, there's a lot of scrutiny about these indirect methods, and percentage markup method is no uh, exception. This method is used when the taxpayer is in a trade or business. The IRS sometimes takes the inventory and multiplies it by a predetermined profit margin to arrive at an unreported income figure. The profit percentage may come from general industry averages. There are a ton of holes in this method. It's like Swiss cheese, um, not the least of which is that item markup varies greatly under different circumstances. So the service normally only uses this method in civil cases where there's a lower burden of proof. Here are some potential arguments that the defendant might make to the percentage markup method. Quote, my business does worse than the average. The fact that the industry has an average 16% profit doesn't mean that I have a 16% profit. Another potential argument, quote, I deal in several different kinds of products, and there are different profit percentages on these different kinds of products. This means complex calculations. What if the percentage changes? Suppose a taxpayer sells a number of different products, but in varying percentages over the years. When taxpayers underreport income, they often underreport their deductions for cost of goods sold. That kind of makes sense when you think about it. That is, they understate the amount that they actually spent on inventory. By doing so, that gives the impression that they had less inventory and less merchandise. Therefore, they sold less and had less income. By understating deductions, that covers up a bigger understatement of income. The understatement of inventory itself 
is an affirmative act. So remember how we talked about affirmative acts at the beginning um, as one as part of one of the elements of tax evasion? The understatement of inventory is itself an affirmative act. The main use of indirect methods is to establish underreported income. On rare occasions, however, indirect methods can be used to establish overstated deductions. In something of a reverse net worth argument, the IRS may try to prove that the taxpayer didn't have enough income to claim certain deductions. This method assumes that the taxpayer didn't have any leftover money from previous years, and that's often a tenuous assumption. So you can see right now we're getting into very gray territory. Um, these methods get complicated very fast. And when it comes to lay people as jurors, the government, the government becomes reluctant to take these types of cases to trial because of how complicated they are for jurors to wrap their heads around. Um, it's, it's sometimes, when you think about these things, they sometimes make sense and they're logical. Like for example, you know, if there isn't enough income um, to sustain a certain amount of deductions that a taxpayer takes, it makes sense that the taxpayer has overstated deductions. But, you know, the, this oftentimes falls on the numbers that were reported, and it oftentimes turns on the type of business that the taxpayer had. There's so much doubt that the taxpayer can inject into these cases that it's not even funny. It's not as simple as, well, you know, all of these deductions, really? Are you that serious? Um, and your income was only this amount? It, the defense attorney still has ammunition to play with. And that's why these are really going down a slippery slope. And they tend to be not the type of cases that the government wants to take to trial because there's just so much opportunity for uh, weaving doubt um, and seeds of doubt in these cases on the part of the defense. So the government's argument would be that the taxpayer overclaimed deductions for employee business expenses on the return. As a preliminary matter, it's hard for the government to prove an overstatement of deductions. In the criminal context, if the taxpayer's return says that he spent 40000 on deductible items, the government must show that 40000 wasn't spent on deductible items. You know, I suppose that in theory, if the government can make that showing, then that would blow out of the water the um, the claim by the taxpayer that he had 40000 of deductible items, but it's never that easy. Uh, how does the government, how would the government in a case like this go about showing that 40000 was never spent on these items? Um, does the government ask everyone that the taxpayer has ever done business with, how much did the tax pay, taxpayer pay you and for what? You see, you see where this is heading? In this case, the government argued that the taxpayer did not have enough income to make the expenditures that he claimed to have made. Therefore, the, de the deductions must have been overstated. This is like a bit of a reverse net worth method argument. After the government presents its case in chief, it's customary for the defense to move for what's called an acquittal on the grounds of an 
of insufficiency of evidence. It's usually also called motion for directed verdict. The defense did just that in this case, and the court granted the motion and dismissed the case. And in doing so, the court's the court's ruling like spoke volumes in the sense that it said to the government, what the heck were you thinking? You brought this case to trial? There wasn't even enough evidence to get in your, in your case in chief to approve beyond a reasonable doubt that this element, that these elements were present. And so before we even get to the defense putting on their case, uh, we are dismissing it. Um, and so that is a resounding, resounding message that gets sent to the prosecution. And when you think about these cases, they don't go in in just a week or two. You think about jury selection. You think about the government's case in chief taking weeks um, you know, and then in a motion for a directed verdict or in a motion for an acquittal on the grounds of insufficiency or of evidence for the judge to grant that defense motion and end the trial right then and there, nothing speaks volumes more than that. The government's proof, this is the analysis that the court engaged in. The government's proof consisted of nothing more than that the taxpayer didn't have any any money generated by the activity in the year in question. That alone doesn't establish whether the taxpayer had money generated by previous year's activities outside of the prosecution period. Appellate review. When an appellate court reviews the sufficiency of evidence, it does so in a light most favorable to the party for whom the jury gave its verdict. If the defendant is convicted, questions of evidentiary sufficiency are evaluated in a light that is most favorable to upholding the conviction. Having expended the judicial resources, courts don't want to undo the verdict and try the case a second time. In other words, if the jury convicts the taxpayer, the taxpayer must prove on appeal that the evidence was almost laughable in the sense that it was inadequate and that there was and that no reasonable juror could have possibly voted to convict based on such proof providing the IRS with leads or hints of leads can potentially set the stage for attack on the basis that the agents passed up reasonable leads of course and this is a defense strategy of course the lead must suggest some potential relief to the target so that it is fair to reject the methodology for failure to pursue the lead. Various indirect methods can be combined in hybrid kinds of approaches as long as that does not create confusion. In closing, uh, what I'd like to say, and you know, I just want to circle back for a second. A defense strategy of providing the IRS with leads or hints of leads that might that the IRS doesn't pursue can, in fact, set the stage for the defense to later on argue that this lead was provided to the IRS, and if pursued, you know, it, it would have shown innocence or it would have been consistent with innocence on the part of my defendant, my client. Um, and so it's a strategy that the defense attorney could later 
you rely upon to argue at trial that the government didn't do this. And if they had done this, it would have shown that. Um, so it, it's a setup in the sense. Um, but again, the lead must suggest some potential relief to the target so that it is fair um, to reject the methodology for, for, for failure to pursue the lead. Um, so all of these have to add up um, in the sense that um, it's fair to reject the methodology because um, the government never pursued the lead. Now, anyone who has ever faced off against the IRS knows all too well how much they are like pit bulls and how this agency has a multitude of tool, tools to collect what it claims the taxpayer owes. And in an audit situation, these tools are powerful and uh, very intimidating. Uh, they are still present in criminal court even if there is no direct evidence supporting an income tax evasion claim. Nonetheless, the harder DOJ tax must work to obtain a conviction, the higher the likelihood of a positive outcome for the taxpayer. These cases are very specialized and, you know, if you even get a hint or a whiff that a potential audit of a client could turn criminal, you want to engage a criminal tax attorney at the earliest stages possible um, because in those cases, it might be possible to do damage control. It might be possible to um, ink certain types of agreements that would bring your accountants under a special shield that would ensure that the privilege that's enjoyed between attorneys and clients is um, similarly enjoyed between the tax preparer and the client. Uh, what we're talking about is the ironclad attorney-client privilege, the privilege that exists between a tax preparer and a client is not nearly as airtight as that enjoyed between the taxpayer and the attorney. Um, so you want to get what's called a Covell agreement in effect as early as possible, preferably before an audit is even triggered. Um, and, you know, there's just so many pitfalls in this process because at the end of the day, the government is in need of so much things that are in the possession of the taxpayer. And it turns into a cat and mouse game for the government to acquire these, um, the, these items from the taxpayer. A lot of it is public in the sense of IRS returns, but also a lot of it is information that is in the possession, exclusive possession, that is, of the taxpayer. And to the extent that the IRS can get these items, um, they can use them to build their case. And so, again, there's no substitute for getting a tax attorney involved in a in, in, in a case that looks to be heading in the direction of, a, of an audit, of a, of a civil audit, or for that matter, a criminal tax case as early as possible. Should you have any questions about anything covered in this presentation, I encourage you to contact me anytime. This was a lot. 
I get it. A lot of people tell me that it was like drinking out of a fire hydrant. As I said, if I can be of any help, feel free to contact me anytime. It was my pleasure to present this.